Welcome to episode 39 of Battle Rhythm, the Canadian podcast that tells you what you need to know on security and defense. I'm Stephanie Von Latke, and my co-host, Steve Seidman, will join me shortly. In today's episode, we talk about Biden's security of defense pick, the role of the Canadian military in rolling out the vaccine, but we also talk about 2020 highlights as we get ready to break for the holidays. Our feature interview is with Dr. Evan Resnick, assistant professor at RSIS, a graduate school of Nanyang Technological University in Singapore. At the very end of the episode, we have Steve's R&R segment. Thank you for listening. Stephanie, how are you doing? I'm doing great, thank you. And let me start by congratulating you on a successful event last Friday with your Year Ahead conference. Thanks, Steph, I appreciate that. I, it went really well. I, I wish we could have done it in person. I wish we could have captured people in the War Museum and plied them with uh, coffee and cookies and cakes and lunch and all that sort of stuff. We really missed out on having the, the breaks where we could network and meet new people and meet old people, old friends. But the event itself went really well. We had four panels and a keynote speaker. And there was only one modest hiccup, which involved the, the, the taped speech by our dean. Otherwise, everybody was able to attend in terms of our, our participants. And we had people from South Africa and the Caribbean, as well as from across Canada. So that, that went well. And I think the presentations were really engaging and provided us with some good ideas about what we are going to face in the year ahead. We will try to have some of those speakers on the podcast in uh, January and February, as is our tradition. Yeah, that's a great idea. I really enjoyed uh, the, the first panel in particular because it, it reminded me of some of the discussions we've been having on, on China. And so mm -hmm. having Roland Paris sort of kick things off with this presentation on, on China gave me some, some good ideas on where we can take the discussion next and certainly underscoring the differences in how democracies view China. We've been focused a lot on the United States under Trump and the increasingly adversarial tone of the relationship. While in Europe, China is seen more as a strategic competitor. So Roland was suggesting that Canada should play its uh, traditional bridge builder role mm -hmm. to try to, um, I guess, consolidate these two perspectives between what Europeans think of China and then what America thinks of China. So I hope that Canada can contribute in that mm -hmm. way in the future, at least help in defining this common agenda between the U.S. and traditional allies. Yeah, I think that, that it's always great to have Roland kick off a conference. And I think having China be the first uh, panel was good because that obviously has been a central concern of Canadian foreign policy ever since they took the two Michaels, but even before that, but especially the past year with difficulties with China shaping our pandemic reaction. One of the reasons why we don't have a vaccine produced in Canada is because the one place that we were thinking about producing them involved a partnership with a Chinese firm, and that didn't work out too well. And we had panels on global perspectives, which involved getting uh, Caribbean countries and, and scholars from the Caribbean and from South Africa to, to speak to their experiences. And we had uh, a panel on gray zone conflict, which featured Philip Dufour and some of his members of his Mines Funded Network on hybrid warfare. 
and we had uh, our diversity fireside chat, which was really interesting. We had a couple of people from the indigenous community and one person uh, who, who's gay and out in the, uh, the intelligence sec- uh, sector speak about their experiences. And, and so that's, that was a really enlightening uh, conversation. And we had our keynote speaker, Ambassador Jackie O'Neill, who was on our last podcast, I believe. She gave a, a, had a great conversation, I should say. She didn't want to give a speech. She wanted to have a give and take. So Beth, and I want to pronounce her name right, but I'm not going to get it right. Oraniak, who leads the Women, Peace, and Security Network. The two of them had a conversation about Women, Peace, and Security. And I think one of the interesting things about it was it showed how gendered everything is. So, so we talked about, they, they talked about snow removal and they talked about chemical warfare. So it really was a good way to make it clear that these kinds of dynamics are present in all kinds of things. And so that was a really great conversation. So I was really happy with the way it went. And I, I hope we didn't build up too high expectations because you guys have a conference uh, <laughs> Thursday and Friday this week that your network, Network for Strategic Digital Analysis is having a two-day event on Thursday and Friday, right? That's correct. I was taking notes on Friday as you were hosting your conference because yes, we'll, we're co-hosting our annual colloquium for the Réseau d'Analyse Stratégique or Network for Strategic Analysis in English. So do you have any tips for me now that you're reflecting back on Friday, some quick wins that we can implement in the next two days? (laughs) Well, I doubt that there's anything you can't really do. We made things shorter because the Zoom attention span is shorter than in person. Mm -hmm. So that was a surprise to some of our panelists that we wanted to go a little shorter, but they, they stuck to their time limits. So I think that worked out really well. And hire a good AV company because uh, they managed it really well. Uh, we didn't have to worry about the technology. So that, that made a huge difference. Yeah, we've done the same thing. And so my efforts have mostly been focused on the content and developing the program. We've designed our program around our three core themes for mm-hmm. the Minds Network. So great power competition, multilateralism and crisis and capacity building. What we wanted to do was to showcase the research that's done across these areas by our, our researchers, because it's our first annual colloquium. So I think that in years two and three, we can go into new directions and mm-hmm. maybe bring in more outside speakers. But for this inaugural conference, we really wanted to, I guess, brag about the expertise that our network has and, and really maybe. to have uh, those research research findings be the frontliner for for the conference. All of the presentations that will happen in French, because it's a bilingual event, will be simultaneously translated. I know that you had that too during the year ahead conference, and, mm-hmm. and I really like having that as an option. And we'll have uh, interpreters on, on Zoom, just like we did. And we have two exciting keynotes that I'll just flag right here in case some people still want to register. And that's uh, Lieutenant General Mike Rouleau, who's the Vice Chief of the Defense Staff. And on day two, so Friday, our keynote is uh, Dr. Marina Henke, who's a professor of international relations at the Hurdy School and director of the Center for International Security in Berlin. So she'll be joining us from across the pond. And uh, for those of you who don't know uh, Marina, I would say uh, to go check out her website. She's got Mm -hmm. one of the most impressive uh, (laughs) personal website I've ever seen at marinahenke.com. But she's also a a photographer so you can see that there's some beautiful visual and, and design yeah. elements on her website anyway she's had one of the most amazing couple of years when it comes to publishing her work on alliance yeah. politics so I'm, I'm so happy that she accepted the invitation because we do want to know you know what other allies are thinking about this transition and, and what american leadership is going to look like in 2021 and, and on so i'm very excited about the colloquium mm-hmm. on thursday and friday 
always a little bit nervous. It always feels like it's the calm before the storm. You spend so many weeks and months planning with your team. And then during the week of the conference, all of a sudden there's not much left to do except wait <laughs> until the big day. And yeah. uh, we kick things off on, on Thursday morning. So I guess as we air, that'll be tomorrow morning. Well, that's that's great because uh, I, I, I've met Rulo. We both, we were both speakers at an event at Canadian Forces College a few years ago. And he also spoke, uh, was part of a conversation at Nipsia a few years ago. And, and he's a really interesting dynamic. He's an officer. He's, he's more open and blunt than some other officers are. So I think he'll have interesting things to say. And Marina Henke is actually one of the last academics I got to hang out with before the pandemic. I was in Germany in January. Uh, last year and, and we went out for drinks and uh, she is super dynamic and interesting and is one of the leaders uh, in this world of doing a, alliance politics stuff as as are you and so i'm sure she'll have really interesting things to say i'm looking forward to it you brought up biden and i'm not a fan of biden today and so i thought i'd vent my spleen before we we get going with other other topics which is the news of the day, the news of the past 12 hours, 15 hours or so has been that he has picked retired General Lloyd Austin to be a Secretary of Defense. And I have been on this corner since actually December of 2016, when I opposed the appointment of Mattis as Secretary of Defense. I think that having retired generals be Secretary of Defense is a bad, bad, bad idea. And four years ago, people said, we can make an exception because he'll be an adult in the room. But Mattis turned out to be a pretty lousy defense secretary. I think he thought of himself more as an uber general than a secretary of defense. The Pentagon became less transparent. He delegated way too much responsibility for how the wars were run but to the generals rather than having the civilians and the civilian side of, of the Pentagon uh, make policy. And uh, Lloyd Austin is another general, which means he spent the past 30 years hanging out with other military people. He will have developed a military mindset. He's been socialized thoroughly by being in the military for so long, and he will not be providing civilian control of the military. He'll be providing military control of the military. And I think this is a problem at a time where the norms of civil military relations in the United States are, are in tatters, thanks to what Donald Trump did to politicize the American military and because Mattis served as Secretary of Defense. I think we need a fresh start and we need to go back to the old standards, which was no generals and no admirals in that office. And so given that there was a number of really good candidates, including several women in, and most notably Michelle Flournoy, I find this to be deeply upsetting. I understand that this is a first, this is the first time you know, an African-American would be serving as SECDEF, but I think it's a bad idea. And I also think that that Biden will be wasting a lot of local capital because he will need to get, in addition to a confirmation vote in the Senate, for this position, he will need to get Austin a waiver for the legal requirement. The legal requirement is that any SECDEF has to have been out of service for seven years unless there's a vote passed by the House and the Senate. And so therefore, Biden is going to need to get Democrats in the House and Republicans in the Senate to vote to waive this requirement. So I think it was a bad choice and a missed opportunity. And I think it's, it's, it's going to help continue to shatter the norms of civilian control of the military in the United States. And I don't think that you're the only one who <laughs> that. Uh, I saw your your tweet this morning. I knew you'd be upset about this uh, this decisions and and this announcement. You you tweeted that Biden couldn't find a black civilian with the requisite expertise to be SecDef is either a failure of Biden's team or of the national security community. So did you get a lot of engagement on that that tweet since this morning? Not not a lot. I I got my other tweets got a little bit more engagement. I I do think that this does reflect a problem which is that a friend of mine, Josh Faust, who's worked in the national security space, was talking about organizational hoarding. I think that's a phrase or, or opportunity hoarding. 
I guess is a phrase, which is that in the American national security space, that is the think tanks, the research groups, the consultancies around the Pentagon, not in the Pentagon, but in Washington, there are very few people of color at the highest levels. And I've been involved with some organizations that have been trying to rectify that. We had uh, Bonnie Jenkins of Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security. We're trying to help improve the diversity in DC in these areas. But the challenge has been that over the past you know, 20 or 30 years, these organizations have not done a good job of promoting African-Americans or other people of color. And so at, at this moment in time, it was interesting to see that there were really no names being bandied about who are African-Americans for the SecDef job, except for uh, Jay Johnson, who was Secretary of Homeland Security for, for Obama, and Lloyd Austin. And so where are the others? And there may not be others because there's been that community has been less diverse than the military. Now, one of the problems with the American military is it's very diverse, but not so diverse amongst its officer corps, but its officer corps is still, the highest level of its officer corps is still more diverse than the highest levels of the think tank consultant civilian expertise community of the national security folks in, in DC. So uh, we'll see if other names come to the fore, but I think this is a real problem. And, and the I know that a lot of women are also disappointed because they thought Michelle Flournoy was the best qualified candidate. And by skipping over her, that, that sends them a message that, not a message that I think Biden wanted to send. Oh, you're right. And I'll be following what you have to say on this along with uh, Lindsay Cohn on, on Twitter. I know we had her as a guest earlier on the show and, and she's been speaking out about this decision and, and talking about the importance of restoring civil norms. And also in the New York Times, uh, Jim Goldie had an op-ed, which is pretty good, about why a recently retired general should not be Secretary of Defense. I guess we'll, we'll see what happens, whether or not uh, that congressional waiver is secured or not. Do you think it will be? I actually don't know. I mean, this is a, the other thing about Biden is that he's taking a big risk, which is he's already have a, a problem getting a lot of his appointees through a Mitch McConnell controlled Senate if they don't pick up the Senate seats in Georgia in January. And then this is more contested. So you have all the people who are on the record. There were like about 17 or 18 Democratic senators who opposed Mattis's waiver four years ago because they thought it was bad for civil mill relations. And so they will all be put to the test on this. So they're not going to appreciate being put in the spotlight. You know, are they going to be hypocritical by you know, supporting Austin, but not Mattis? And so I think it's a waste of political capital at this point in time. And he may not get Austin through. And then would he then go to Flournoy and say, well, you're second best. That's not really a great message to send. So I just don't think this was really the best idea. I understand that, that Biden was under pressure from certain parts of his coalition to have more African-Americans in the highest, most visible, most important important positions in his cabinet. And because he didn't put Susan Rice at Secretary of State, and because his national security advisor was also a white man, it put more pressure on this particular spot. And I get that. And I do think it sends a positive message to have an African-American as SecDef. But I think it's wrong to have a general as SecDef. And I, I just can't overcome that. I think it's, I've used the phrase disqualifying. It is disqualifying. Uh, we'll see how it goes. But speaking of, of generals in places that we wouldn't expect them to be, we have retired generals in Ontario being responsible for the rollout of the vaccination. And we have current major general Fortin being the lead of the rollout of the vaccine in Canada. So should I be as upset about this as I am about the American case? What are your thoughts on having uh, Rick Hillier return to prominence in rolling out the vaccine in Ontario and having Fortin be responsible for the rollout nationally? 
Well, Hillier is the, the former chief of the defense staff and I suppose his most significant operational experience was in Afghanistan and Major General Danny Fortin is the former NATO commander in Iraq uh, and he was there uh, in 2019. So you have to wonder how does this experience, how did these military experiences translate into domestic vaccine distribution operations. And yeah, I think that a lot of people are picking up on the fact that you have a major general at the in Health Canada right now uh, overseeing the logistics of rolling out this, this vaccine through Obvector. But I think it's important to keep the conversation focused on what the military will actually be asked to do. And it's really, you know, strongly focused on, on logistics. It's still early to be able to tell precisely exactly what the military tasks will entail because the provinces and territories have to conduct their own needs assessments and then call on help uh, where, they, where they need support. But a few of the tasks that have been thrown out there involve picking up COVID-19 vaccine doses from other countries, including going all the way to Europe to do so. The distribution efforts are also massive and, and certainly across the country and will last for a, a long time. So I can imagine that the Canadian forces will be called upon to provide support for the distribution efforts, especially in remote locations where logistical challenges are particularly acute. And also to, to work with the various waves of vaccine distribution. So the first wave, of course, will be, you know, the most vulnerable people uh, prioritized then, of course, essential workers and so on. So this is not just going to be done in a matter of months. This will occur in, in several waves. And this is important because over the course of, let's say, the spring and the summer, the military is often called upon to do other types of domestic operations, whether it's floods or forest fires. So it'll be interesting to see how all of this plays out in terms of the military operational tempo. We were lucky in a sense this past spring and summer because as the, the military was being called upon to help with op laser, there could have been multiple calls on the military, uh, but floods and forest fires weren't as bad as they had been in previous years, so it's manageable. But we, uh, it could be very different this spring and summer, so so let's hope uh, that won't be a factor. And then, of course, some some vaccines have uh, you know interesting storage challenges given very low temperatures they they must be stored at. So when it comes to vaccine storage or you know more broadly dispatching equipment and medical supplies to regions across Canada, maybe troops will be called upon to help with those types of tasks as well. So I think in any discussion about, you know, the, the appointment of mm -hmm. uh, Major General Fortin, we still need to look nitty gritty. What does that mean on the ground in terms mm -hmm. of what the troops will be asked to do? Well, I think one of the key things to keep in mind is not so much that he had previously had a NATO post, but his job before this one was Chief of Staff for Canadian Joint Operations Command. And Canadian Joint Operations Command is the headquarters for the doing of the Canadian Armed Forces doing stuff at home or abroad, including responding to emergencies like floods, fires, ice storms, the pandemic. And so as Chief of Staff of CJOC, his job was to coordinate the interactions between the Canadian Armed Forces and municipal and provincial authorities and non-governmental actors and all the rest. Thanks to your help, I interviewed a previous CJOC uh, Chief of uh, Staff, Brigadier General Lise Bergnall, and we talked exactly about 
that that part of the job of coordinating domestic operations. And so it makes sense to have this guy, Dan, uh, Major General Danny Fortan, do this job because there's going to be so much need for coordination across the country, as you identified. And and that's his that's his expertise that matters. That he has experience in interacting with all the provinces and with the cities and with authorities beyond D&D. So I think he has the background. I think it's more symbolic politics than anything else to have Rick Hillier be getting paid boodles of money to help Ontario. I think that's more of a Doug Ford move to try to make his response to pandemic look good. I mean, that might be my bias about how Doug Ford has messed up the pandemic, but I just don't really know what, what Hillier will be doing precisely. But on the other hand, again, as you mentioned, logistics, you know, the classic phrase is amateur talk, amateurs talk strategies, professionals talk logistics when it comes to military matters. And so having been CDS and having had all kinds of responsibilities beyond that, Hillier does have the background for managing large enterprises and Ontario is a large province that has lots of complexities involved. So I'm not that surprised they're relying uh, on that. And it's the case that once again, the military is unlike any other agency, which has tens of thousands of individuals who don't have day jobs they have to be at every single moment. They have, they are a surge capacity. They have people whose job it is, is to drop what they're doing, which is usually training, and doing whatever the doing is, whether that's a deployment abroad or that's running into elder care facilities, or in this case, helping to ship and organize the vaccine delivery. So I'm not surprised by this. I'm not horrified by this. And like I'm horrified by having another SECDEF be a general. I think this is using the military, which has in Canada the traditional role of aiding civil power, aid to civil power. This is what they do. And they, they, they're not commanding it. They're being told, here, you have these resources, you have these assets, uh, use them to help us with this effort. The military will not be setting the objectives. It will not be setting them up the mission, but it will be organizing the stuff to make it work. And so I'm not upset by this at all. I'm not surprised, although I was kind of surprised by Hillier coming out of the shadows and particularly mm-hmm. in Ontario, since he's based in uh, Atlantic Canada. Yeah, it'll be interesting how they design the public communications campaign or public Mm -hmm. education campaign, because that's part of what the task force that Hillier is leading is is meant to do. So I'm looking forward to see how exactly those public education and community outreach efforts will be designed and, and rolled out to encourage vaccination. And that's a problem because the military has been under fire for doing domestic information operations campaigns. And so you'll find the David Puglisi's of the world criticize the military if they're involved in the pro-vax uh, messaging. So we'll see how that goes. But, you know, 2020 has been such a, a difficult year for all of us. And we're hopeful that 2021 will be better with the vaccine and all. But we thought this, since this is our last podcast of the year of, of 2020, that we look back and think about uh, what are the best things that happened either to Canada or to ourselves or to Canadian Defense and Security over the past 12 months? And since this is a tough question, I'll let you go first. <laughs> oh, thank you. Well, 2019 was was great for the CDSN and this year, 2020, was great for me because of the Minds Network grant with uh, Justin Messi and creating the Network for Strategic Analysis. It's you know this, it's always a ton of work to set up these new initiatives. You got to build websites, hire teams, but I'm really, really proud of the work we did to launch this first fully bilingual Minds Network. And then more broadly um, for Canadian defense and security, I hope you won't see this as a cop-out, but uh, my, my answer is more in line with establishing foreign policy priorities for, for Canada. So in 2020, we've seen the launch of public consultations on Canada's feminist foreign policy. We referred to this uh, uh, during our last episode as uh, 
the government was encouraging submissions uh, for these public consultations. And so there are ongoing plans to develop a white paper. And I just think that this should have been done sooner after Trudeau's uh, first election win, and certainly before defense consultations were launched in 2016, and then the defense policy was unveiled in 2017. So I think this is good news for security and defense, just because more clearly articulating foreign policy priorities, it, it needs to be done in, in order to have a defense policy that, that makes sense. Because based on the foreign policy priorities that you establish, clearly you then design and develop the security and defense tools that are necessary to support them. So that's my answer for what's the best thing that happened to me in 2020. And then mm -hmm. you know, what uh, I find uh, noteworthy or important or encouraging about Canadian defense and security in 2020. So over to you. Okay, well, I think uh, obviously uh, the CDSN continued to, to move you along and having your organization be successful has been successful for us. We helped to launch a second podcast in French, thanks to the development of your network in, in tandem with, with the CDSN. So I think that's been a good thing for me and for our organization. Uh, we've gotten a lot of support over the past year from all of our partners. I think one of the highlights of the year was actually in reaction to the pandemic, which is we had a rapid reaction conference in April where we asked D&D for their questions about the pandemic. What, what do they want to know about how what the pandemic was doing and how we should react to it? And so we had a conference very quickly and produced a, a set of uh, memos. So I thought that was a real success for our, our organization. So I think that was a, that was a highlight. This, you know, reacting to this awful thing. Uh, I had some good travel before the pandemic. I, I, I got to go to Germany and Japan. And so while that feels like years ago, those were some of the highlights of the year. I, had, I was shepherding a group of uh, graduate students from University of Ottawa, from the University of Toronto, and from Carleton for eight or so days, just as the pandemic was breaking out last February in, in Japan. And I, that was really a terrific trip for me. I, I think one of the highlights for me was that my daughter managed the stress of being furloughed quite well and has become quite the the activist. She's been spending a lot of time over the past, I don't know, six, eight months helping protesters who've been arrested in Los Angeles get out of jail and then providing them with food, water, advice, legal and, and otherwise. So I've been very proud of what she's been doing the past, you know, since since June, essentially, I guess. So that's been a real highlight of the year. So I guess those are the, the personal highlights and the professional highlights. Canada's highlight, uh, you know, besides Biden winning, so they don't have to deal with Trump anymore. I, I think it's been a real tough year. And uh, I do think that we've seen individuals rise to the fore across Canada and handling uh, the, the crisis. And that Canadians on the whole have shown a lot of character. The Atlantic bubble, I think, has been, a, you know, it's, it's kind of broken down the last few weeks. But I think for, for so long, that gave us a lot of hope and, and, and uh, admiration for how successfully they had managed the, the crisis. So uh, what is your favorite Battle Rhythm episode of 2020, since it's the last chance for us to, to talk about the podcast this year? That's a tough one. I don't think I can say I have one favorite episode, but I did really like bringing our partners and close colleagues on the show, especially mm -hmm. in a year where we don't get to interact face to face. Mm -hmm. It was really nice to feature the other Minds Networks and have folks like JC Boucher, Anessa Kimball, Thomas Genoux, Irina Goldenberg, and I, more names should come to my mind, but it was just really nice to have them pass through on the show. And it's true that we have we, we have an incredibly friendly and collegial network uh, mm -hmm. with the CSN and the network of networks with these new minds networks uh, popping up uh, around us. And by inviting Thomas No and Sarah Miriam Martin Brulé also helped in preparing the terrain for the launch of 
our sister podcast, Conseil de Sécurité, which you just mentioned, but I'll just add airs every two weeks in French. We got to continue doing the, the promo since it's uh, quite new and doing incredibly well. So I think that when you invite people on, it gets them comfortable with the idea maybe of mm -hmm. doing it themselves. And they really took up the challenge and, and launched with a bang with their interview with uh, Minister Champagne. So for me, that's been a highlight, just the, the regular rhythm of having folks that we know and enjoy working with just mm -hmm. come on as guests. And I really enjoyed also interviewing Tom Skelly from Out in National Security. Uh, she's now working on the transition team for Biden. So mm -hmm. I really hope that we can have her back to talk about her experience. I'm not going to say this was my favorite episode, though, because it'd be a bit mean since you were not there. JC Boucher was the guest co-host on that episode. Yeah. But I did really enjoy interviewing Sean Skelly. What about you? What was your favorite episode or most memorable episode of 2020? Well, you stole a lot of my thunder because I was going to mention the Out National Security one, episode 36, I thought was a, a terrific one. One of the goals of the CDSN and of the podcast is to highlight voices we don't usually hear from. And so we had several episodes that, that were dedicated to communities that we don't usually hear from. And so that I thought that was a terrific episode. We had episodes in the aftermath of last year's year ahead, like episode 18, which was focused on diversity and inclusion, which had some of the speakers from the year ahead and also our capstone. So it featured both of the, a couple of different events and uh, both younger and older voices that focus on highlighting people who don't, we don't usually hear from. And appropriately, given my rant today, one of my favorite episodes was entitled American versus American, where we talked with Lindsay Cohn, mm -hmm. who is uh, one of my favorite people at the CivMil Twitter, uh, where we talked about the use of American military folks in the United States, where uh, Lindsay got to demythologize the whole idea that there's no, there's never a use of the American military on American soil. That's maybe not as featured in policy documents like aid to civil powers in Canada, but it, it's happened before, it will happen again. So I, I think we had a great year in podcasting. I look forward to you know finding new voices to, to uh, share with the Canadian public and whoever else listens to our podcast. I hope to get better data about who, who is listening to our podcast so I can figure out what works and what plays. We'll be meeting next week to talk about that. So other than the vaccine, what are you looking forward to in 2021? What I look forward to in 2021, uh, going back to Quebec to see friends and families at the top of my list, uh, maybe even traveling beyond that internationally, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm also teaching the field course in international relations starting January 14th, which is a grad class that I've really enjoyed designing. So I'm looking forward to that. Although we're still doing it through remote teaching, it'll be nice to, to connect with a small group like that because it's a course with only 12 graduate students and the discussions are very lively. And more broadly speaking, it would be great to have more predictability in world politics. But even with Biden in the White House, I think that's wishful thinking. So uh, maybe I, I'll leave it at that. Yeah. And what about you? What are you looking forward to in 2021 other than getting a vaccine, maybe? <laughs> yeah, I hope we will have a vaccine sometime in 2021. I, would, I am looking forward to teaching in person again. One of the highlights of 2020 that I, I didn't mention is that one of the ups, you know, there, there is a silver lining to this madness. And the madness cannot, we can't say that it's okay to have this awful pandemic because we got some good things out of it. But there was a good, some good things that did come out of it. I do feel myself closer to my family and friends from all the way back to grad school and even summer camp in that we've been Zooming a lot the past nine months or so. And so I, I do feel closer to people because we've, we've reached out. But I think that that is one of the highlights that I forgot to mention. And so I hope that continues even after we have passed the pandemic, that we've learned that it's okay to hang out online with these tools. Uh, my niece introduced us to Squibble, which is a 
Pictionary type game you can play online. Mm -hmm. We learned this week that the average statement has no artistic skills whatsoever. <laughs> but we knew that already. Uh, but it was fun. So what am I looking forward to in 2021? Well, as I said, teaching in person. I am looking forward to travel again. I had some really great trips that hopefully we'll be able to, to you know, push to 2021. And I am looking forward to seeing what becomes of our students as they face these challenges. I couldn't help but notice whenever I watch your network's activities that they almost always feature some of my old PhD students from McGill. <laughs> uh, so seeing them do more good, great things with your network is, is a delight. And I'm expecting more great things from RAS, NSA in, in the future. We shall see how it plays out. In terms of the rest of the podcast, we have an interview with Dr. Evan Resnick, who's a professor at the Graduate School of Nyan Technological University in Singapore on Alliance stuff. You conducted this interview about alliances of convenience. Exactly. It was great to have Evan on the podcast and he's talking about his latest book, which was published with Columbia University Press in 2019. And it's called Allies of Convenience, A Theory of Bargaining in U.S. Foreign Policy. So great book. I had a chance to read it in preparation for this interview. Of course, it's great to catch up with uh, Alliance scholars, even through Zoom, since we didn't get a chance to do so in Hawaii during ISA last month. <laughs> Yeah, we lost off the ISA in Vegas in March. I'm very frustrated that the best two ISA locations have been lost the pandemic, but this is small, small potatoes compared to what everybody else is going through in this crisis. We'll wrap up the podcast with my R&R segment, which will have a holiday bent to it, of course. Do you have any holiday movie or TV recommendations you'd like to make before you sign off? No, I plan on watching the new Dolly Parton movie, <laughs> but I can't comment on it yet. I haven't seen it. Well, Dolly Parton has been a force for good again because she helped fund the Vanderbilt research effort that has led to one of the vaccines. So yes, uh, support all things Dolly Parton. She is a not a national hero. She's an international hero. Well, I guess that'll do it for this week. We'll bump into each other offline or online, but not on this podcast over the next few weeks. In case I don't tell you, have a great holiday. Enjoy the time you have with family and food and get and try to buy all the gifts that you deserve. <laughs> You've done great things. You need to pamper yourself, ship to yourself as much ready presence as Santa thinks wise. Thank you. And you, I hope that you'll be uh, baking a whole lot during the holidays and, and let me in turn wish you the very best of holidays and also to everyone listening. Happy holidays as well. And thank goodness 2020 is over. Happy New Year to everyone. We'll, we'll be with you in the second week of the new year. Be well. Uh, so I'm Evan Resnick. I'm an assistant professor at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies, which is based at Nanyang Technological University in Singapore. The Rajaratnam School, or RSIS, is a combination of think public policy think tank and graduate school in uh, international studies. Evan, welcome to Battle Rhythm. It's been way too long because of the pandemic. So let me first ask you, what's your new Battle Rhythm like? How are you adapting to the global pandemic as it continues? Well, in S Singapore has been very much an anomaly compared to a lot of countries in the West in that for the first couple of months, this, uh, Singapore had things under control. And then we had thousands of migrant workers that are housed in dormitories on the island started to contract COVID. 
And that quickly led to basically a two-month lockdown as cases spread both among the migrant community and within and started to spread within the non-migrant community in the city. So after the two-month lockdown, they basically returned things to normal. They went through the migrant worker dorms uh, quite systematically and basically quarantined everyone that was ill. And at this point now, things are weirdly back to normal. The number of cases has fallen to virtually zero on a daily basis. The worst of times around March, April, it was hitting about 1,000 plus a day. But now things are pretty much back to normal. There is a, a city statewide a mask mandate. You have to wear a mask everywhere outdoors. Your temperature is checked basically in every building that you enter, malls, stores, restaurants, cafes. But for the most part, things are back to normal, which is very bizarre, uh, especially when you watch the news uh, in the United States or covering Western Europe. So Evan, we're, we're here to talk about your new book and your book came out in 2019. So I guess your, your efforts to do book launches or to travel <laughs> and talk about the book were, were stunted by, by COVID. So I'm really happy that we have a chance to talk about it here today. Uh, it was published with Columbia University Press and it's called Allies of Convenience, A Theory of Bargaining in U.S. Foreign Policy. I read your book this weekend and I enjoyed it a lot. I, I really liked your three main case studies and they examine alliances of convenience in the 70s and 80s. But through these cases, you touch on an enduring problem for American foreign policy. Why does the U.S. embrace untrustworthy autocratic adversaries? So I was wondering first, for the benefit of our listeners, can you give us a brief overview of how your book answers this question? So the springboard for the book is that scholars that study alliances have justifiably and understandably focused their efforts on formal alliances, uh, alliances that are enshrined in a treaty. And scholars of U.S. alliances have focused overarchingly on America's relationship with its formal allies in NATO, bilateral alliance with Japan, South Korea. And I noticed sort of in, I've always been a fan and very interested in the alliance literature. I noticed that very few scholars, if any, had uh, tackled some of the more unsavory alliances. And those are the informal ones that the United States doesn't like to talk about very much. The U.S. government initiates because it has to. It has no other choice but to make common cause with uh, nasty dictatorial regimes under certain emergency or exigent circumstances. And I didn't really see anyone trying to derive any kind of generalizations or try and obtain a deeper understanding of these much more neglected informal alliances of convenience uh, by comparison with you know, the, the, the alliances that the United States uh, is much more proud of. Yeah, the book was an attempt to kind of understand how the U.S. negotiates these, these alliances. Uh, obviously, the, sort of the, the seminal case for me was the relationship, uh, which is sort of captured on the cover of the book, which is the relationship between the United States and the Soviet Union during World War II, the relationship between Roosevelt and Stalin. Famously, uh, Franklin Roosevelt referred to his alliance with Stalin as sort of walking the bridge with the devil and, uh, you know, something we had to do, but we were, weren't terribly uh, happy about it. This was, the, you know, this was the alliance that saved America's bacon during the Second World War. It was Stalin's uh, Red Army that did most of the fighting and dying to defeat Nazi Germany. So, I wanted to get a better sense of what the dynamics of these kinds of unsavory or unholy alliances are and how the U.S. ends up doing. You know, bargaining is an inherent part of any alliance. And I thought that, you know, bargaining takes on a special importance when 
the, the other country that's in the alliance is one that you really are, one that you don't trust, one whose regime is antithetical to your values, and which has in the past behaved in ways that uh, con you know, contradict your own interests. So I wanted to get a sense of how the U.S. does in managing these, what one, one would imagine would be very volatile relationships. Volatile indeed, and it's how Stalin, as you rightly pointed out, came to be known as Uncle Joe during World War II, and how Saudi Arabia continues to be the United States' awkward best friend. And what I find most fascinating about the book is that the United States ultimately seems to do quite quite poorly. You know, in the three cases that you present with these allies of convenience, the United States really seems to only have passive bargaining strategies at its disposal. Can you unpack that logic? Sure. For the sake of the audience, I won't, uh, I'll dispense with all the theoretical mumbo jumbo, but the basic argument's quite simple. These alliances of convenience, uh, in other words, uh, relations of security cooperation with otherwise hostile dictatorships are very unpopular. And the White House, the administration that enters into such a relationship is going to feel a lot of domestic political pressure because, again, there's a risk that Congress or even parts of the executive, renegade parts of the executive branch will not want to partake and, and participate or approve of this. The American public doesn't like dealing with devils, right? Autocratic devils. And so the administration that enters into this kind of security uh, relationship has to balance on the one hand, the need to fend off a larger threat. These alliances are always motivated by some sort of even larger menace, right? So, you know, Roosevelt was able to stomach allying with Stalin because he had to defeat Hitler's Germany and Imperial Japan. And so uh, on the one hand, you, you know, the, the administration has to, it feels it has to form this alliance to confront a greater danger and even worse danger. But on the other hand, these are very unpopular and controversial alliances. And so uh, given that it's hard in the United States to, uh, you know, it's hard for, for, for any White House to uh, mobilize domestic support to get congressional buy-in. Of course, Congress has the power of the purse to get public support. What appears to happen repeatedly, and you, you reference the phenomenon when you referred to Uncle Joe, is that the administration that allies with, uh, with one of these you know, nasty partners feels like it has to make that nasty partner look much more benign than it is. Sort of discount, neglect or ignore bad behavior, oversell really piddling concessions made by the, by the partner state try and make the relationship look as, as warm as possible and make the ally look as sort of as, as benign as possible, which ends up undermining America's negotiating leverage. And so the U.S. ends up kind of allowing these allies to continue their bad behavior. I want to talk a little bit about the case of, of Iraq, because in the past few weeks, the U.S. has been threatening to close down its embassy in Baghdad. So it made me reflect upon your case study uh, of Iraq a little bit more closely. Just thinking, what should the U.S. have done with Iraq in the 1980s? The U.S. wanted to prevent Iran from expanding its influence in the Middle East, but instead it seems that it created another strong adversary in the Gulf. Yeah, this was one of the sort of quintessential cases where, on the one hand, the Reagan administration partners with one of the nastiest fa you know, fascist states uh, of the 20th century, Saddam Hussein's Iraq, in order to balance against revolutionary Iran, 
with which the US had an even worse relationship dating back to the revolution and the hostage crisis uh, at the end of the 1970s. So the US partners with Iraq, uh, providing all kinds of support from intelligence cooperation to uh, agricultural, to, to, to hundreds of millions of dollars in agricultural credits, to uh, the export of dual use technologies that have, you know, technologies that have both civilian and military uses. And the US even though it maintains a formal posture of neutrality towards the Iran-Iraq war, and this is, of course, a war where Saddam Hussein's regime is fighting for its life, even though uh, it was Iraq that, in, that initiated the war against Iran. The United States is doing everything it can, short of actually taking sides formally, to help keep Saddam Hussein afloat and keep him from losing the war. The problem is that even as Saddam is taking all kinds of U.S. assistance and fighting the Iranians, he's also doing a lot of things that are not especially helpful to U.S. interests, such as sponsoring international terrorism around the world and proliferating weapons of mass destruction, especially nuclear weapons, but also biological ones and uh, ballistic missiles. So the basic gist of the story is that in order to keep Saddam alive in his war against the Ayatollah Khomeini's Iran, the Reagan administration basically bites its lip and allows Saddam to continue sponsoring terrorism and making nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles because the, 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 the dangers of, uh, uh, if it were to take a pretty hard line on Saddam's bad behavior, that would have put at risk the very fragile consensus in Congress to provide all sorts of goodies to Saddam and also even in the, in the U.S. Department of Defense, which was very skeptical about providing dual-use technologies to uh, Saddam's regime. This was a case where sort of the short-term interest ends up being contravened by the long-term interest. The short-term interest is to prevent an Iranian victory in the war. The long-term interest is to mitigate the threat posed by Iran or any other regime in the region to the United States. And in the end, the U.S. just swaps one danger for another. It, it counters the, the short-term danger posed by, uh, the, uh, posed by Ayatollah Khomeini, but in exchange, it builds up Saddam's power such that by the end of the war, Iraq just replaces Iran as sort of as the U.S., uh, as the United States' chief nemesis in the Persian Gulf, and the U.S. is obviously at war with uh, Saddam three years later. But at the end of the book, you still go into strategies that the United States could resort to in terms of dealing with allies of convenience, strategies that could improve its bargaining leverage in those situations? Yeah, I mean, sometimes you just stuck. I mean, if I think the World War II case with Stalin, yeah, the Roosevelt administration had to uh, paper over the nastiness of, uh, of Stalin's communist regime, his repressive totalitarian communist regime, called him Uncle Joe, sort of made him, you know, even seem somewhat democratic, uh, or at least painted that image that, you know, Stalin, you know, Stalin's really not so bad. He's kind of like us in some ways. There was also the sort of infamous cover-up of the Katyn massacre, where the, the NKVD shot tens of thousands of uh, Polish officers and buried them. The, you know, the Roosevelt administration found out about this, but covered it up for the sake of winning the war. And the bottom line is that the Red Army was doing the lion's share of the fighting and the dying in the effort to liberate Europe. So I think in, in that circumstances, it was an awful trade-off, but it was one that clearly was in America's interest, was in America's short and long-term interests. But of course, it sort of ran in, Washington ran into the same, pro, the same problem that, that the Reagan administration did with Saddam, is that you defeat one adversary only to replace it with a new one that was your former ally of convenience. 
but these are sort of sometimes uh, geopolitics is just sort of bad, you know, choosing between the lesser of two evils and maybe, and sometimes you just don't have a choice. I mean, what was the U.S. to do, uh, you know, not ally with Stalin and, and, and take, on the Ger take on the Germans and the Japanese by themselves? I think that that was, that was not a viable option. So sometimes you don't have a choice. The issue is sort of, you form an alliance of convenience to take on a larger threat, to, to balance against a larger threat. How threatening is that larger threat? In the case of World War II, that's an ob the answer is obvious. It was existential. In the case of the Iran-Iraq War, uh, I'm not so sure it was existential. Uh, maybe the U.S. had a little bit more wiggle room. In the end of the book, I say maybe the, I sort of say that there's some things that the United States government can do to kind of mitigate this domestic problem because it's really the fear of domestic opposition that leads administrations to become too cozy with these uh, obnoxious allies. And if the executive branch is able to keep cooperation relatively secret and minimal. So things like intelligence cooperation, intelligence sharing, that's something where, the, where, where an administration can do this sort of on the, uh, on the sly and not require lots of domestic mobilization. It doesn't need to mobilize large segments of the executive branch or the Congress or public opinion. And as a result, doesn't end up getting caught in the trap of kind of overselling the ally. This might have been an option in Iraq, that, the United, that a part and parcel of the Reagan administration's policy was to provide Iraq with very important battlefield intelligence about Iranian troop dispositions and movements. If, if that had been the policy alone, it's possible that the administration could have been a bit tougher on Iraq in, the, in areas like of terrorism and, and, and uh, WMD. But the problem was that the policy was not just about secret intelligence sharing, but also very overt forms of support that required lots of buy-in from big executive branch agencies and Congress. Overall, though, I feel like your book still cautions U.S. policymakers strongly against uh, allies of convenience. And there there's one choice that might be on the horizon where the lessons from your book might be especially important in how to engage with Russia as the U.S. attempts to balance against a rising China. So I think your, your book offers fair warnings against doing so uh, because it might present a similar trap for, for the U.S. Yeah, I mean, as I look at U.S. foreign policy right now, as, as sort of interpreted by my, by my uh, study, the U.S. currently has one ally of convenience that it shouldn't and doesn't have one that maybe it should contemplate. So the United States, you know, since the, the longest standing ally of convenience of the U.S. has been Saudi Arabia. The House of Saud has been a very uncomfortable ally of the United States since the Truman administration. And right now, it's looking to me like even though the U.S. has sort of kept the relationship going in spite of, you know, the, the vicious re internal repressiveness of the Saudi regime, it's a longstanding uh, animosity towards the state of Israel, it's, it's support for uh, radical Sunni movements uh, and organizations throughout the region that have caused all kinds of problems. The United States has stuck with the Saudis for a long time because it felt that the larger enemy was worth tackling. Right now, the sort of the bigger enemy that the alliance is aimed at is, is uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran. And 
in the first place, I don't see much of a difference between Iran and the Saudis. They're both troublesome regimes that are extremely repressive. Both of them have engaged in a fair bit of regional adventurism. They're both oil powers. The United States relationship uh, with Iran improved uh, quite significantly under the Obama administration, well, even as its relationship with the Saudis deteriorated considerably. So I don't really see a hell of a lot uh, of difference between those two countries as far as U.S. interests in the region go. And now that the United States is, an, you know, is a net oil exporter again, the Middle East and Persian Gulf region is just not as important as it once was. And so I think it's a, you know, this is a good opportunity for the United States to reevaluate its longstanding alliance with the Saudis. At the same time, I think that as the U.S. contemplates, as U.S. policymakers contemplate played a rising China as potentially the as really the only potential peer competitor of the United States in the coming decades, it, it will probably be worth contemplating or uh, countenancing uh, whether to establish improved uh, security cooperation or to establish uh, security cooperation with, with Russia, with the Russian Federation. This is obviously, the relationship is extremely toxic now, but you know, Russia and China live next door to each other. They have uh, a very long border with what shared border with, with one another. They're natural geopolitical competitors. They've lo- they have still have unresolved uh, border disputes in the Russian Far East region. I would, if you're going to be a crude geopolitician, you know, situated in Washington, Russia looks like a pretty good ally of convenience to to attract in order to contain a rising China. And after all, China has more potential to, to pose a, a, a mortal danger to the United States than any other great power in the, in the 20th century. It's wealthy, far wealthier than the Soviet Union ever was. Uh, it has military potential to equal, if not eclipse, US, US military power in the next several decades. So China is going to be a major problem. In that case, you kind of want all the friends that you can muster. And that might include, you know, the Russians. But it'll come at a steep price, your book would predict. Yeah, that's the problem, is given the, the, the sort of the particularities of the U.S. political process, the U.S. is a very uh, open, uh, liberal democracy in which political power, the executive branch, and between the executive branch and Congress and the American public have a lot of control and influence over foreign policy issues. In such circumstances, it's hard to imagine a case where the U.S. could befriend a very toxic state as an ally of convenience and also reform the behavior of that ally in the process. In other words, the U.S. really, it's almost impossible to have its cake and eat it too, to mm. form an alliance with a bad country, to meet some larger danger, but also you know, turn that ally into a, into a good, respectable international citizen. This is unlikely to happen. So yeah, the key question is, Okay, the U.S. may need Russia to help balance against against the Chinese superpower, but what sorts of concessions would the U.S. have to make? Well, if we go back to World War II, we see that the concessions were quite steep. The U.S. had had to sort of it had to confront the same calculus during World War II. How much is it worth, you know, to get Russian help to defeat the Nazis and the Japanese? Well, it ended up being, you know, the cost of that alliance ended up being uh, the sacrifice of Eastern Europe. Yeah, well, uh, so proceed with caution. And uh, your, your book can also read like an interesting self-help book for how to manage toxic relationships in international <laughs> politics. 
That's great. It's wonderful to be able to talk about your work, Evan, and wonderful to catch up. I do hope that we get to see each other soon, but in the meantime, stay safe and thank you so much for being on Battle Rhythm. You too. Thank you so much, Stephanie. This is a fantastic opportunity and I greatly appreciate it. So for this end of the year episode, I have a few suggestions for relaxing and distracting. The first is, uh, we'll put a link in the show notes, but you can also search for it on uh, the internet. David Diggs has a puppy for Hanukkah. It's a music video about a kid wanting a puppy for Hanukkah. And it is hilarious. And it's a, not a bad tune either. So that's my first recommendation. My second is Dash and Lily. It's a rom-com uh, miniseries on Netflix about a girl and a, a boy, teenagers in New York who communicate to each other strictly through, at first anyway, a uh, journal that is placed in the shelves of bookstore. It's very sweet, but it's also good. And it reminds us the joy of New York in a non-pandemic time. The next thing to watch is the on Disney+. Plus. It is the Lego Star Wars holiday special. As bad as the original Star Wars holiday special was in 1977, the Lego Star Wars holiday special is wonderful. It is fantastic. It makes references to pretty much every Star Wars product, TV show, movie. I'm looking forward to watching it again. It was hilarious. It might be one of the very best pieces of Star Wars anything. It competes well with even The Mandalorian. Uh, so I recommend that highly. For the reading for this week, I'm not sure mincemeat is a, is a winter fest dish, but Operation Mincemeat is a book I'm reading right now by Ben McSinty or McKinty. Uh, it is a book about a deception operation performed during World War II. The challenge, everybody's expecting the allies to invade Sicily. How do we tell the access that the invasion is coming elsewhere? And so this operation involved putting fake documents on a dead body and putting it somewhere near where the Germans could get at it. And it was successful, more or less. And so I'm in the middle of that book. And so it's it's interesting to read history, uh, particularly of, of intelligence operations. So that's that's what I'm doing. And uh, I recommend it highly. Whatever you do this break, uh, this, this time frame, uh, reach out to friends and family, watch some good distracting TV, movies, whatever you can find. This year is almost over and 2021 will certainly be better than 2020. So be well and happy new year from all of us at Battle Rhythm. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments. And so please send them to us at Twitter address at CDSNRCDS or email them to CDSN.RCDS at Outlook.com. Thank you.